0: All right, how are we going tonight, Kemal? Are doing well? Oh, okay, 50-50. Let's try again. Are we doing well tonight, Kemal? There we go. Uh, All right, so tonight we're jumping into uh, the the second sermon in our little mini-series that we have called A Faithful God. Uh, As together we walk through one of the most pivotal moments in all of the book of Acts, uh, the the story, the, the sermon, and eventually the martyrdom of Stephen. A man who we saw last week was described as having the face like an angel. And where we left off last week, things were getting pretty heated. You know, Stephen was under attack for for preaching the gospel, that because of the great signs and wonders he was doing among the people, because of the wisdom and the spirit of which he was speaking, that this crowd forms against him. And they start accusing him of blasphemy against Moses, against God, against the temple, and against the law. And we're really at this point where, where people are pretty much picking up stones, that they are not happy with Stephen, they, they, they want to stop him, they, they believe he's a heretic and a blasphemer. And, and so what we're about to see is we're about to see Stephen's response to these accusations. And, and in fact, this is going to be pretty much this mini-series over the next couple of weeks is just walking verse by verse through Stephen's sermon. And, and look, it's really interesting because the way Stephen chooses to respond to these accusations is he just gets up and he preaches from the Word. That The crowd are like, look, you're dishonoring Moses, you're dishonoring the law. Uh, and so Stephen's like, okay then, let, let, let me open the book, let me teach through all of the Old Testament, and let me show you what it actually says. And there's a couple of things I think that Stephen is going to do in this message. So, so firstly, he's showing the faithfulness of God. That if, if you look back through the rear view mirror of history, what you will see is that time and time and time again, God has been faithful. That he was faithful to Abraham, he was faithful to Isaac, he was faithful, faithful to Jacob and Joseph and, and Moses, that he's been faithful again and again, and so he will therefore be faithful today. And yet despite that, God's people have often been a faithless people that they've turned away, that they've worshipped false idols, they've sacrificed to false gods, and and even then God has remained faithful through it all. So that's the first thing I think Stephen's going to be tracking through as he walks through the books of the Old Testament. And and the second thing Stephen's going to do is he's going to trace through this promise that is made by God. And, And at first the promise is made to Abraham, but through him it is made to all of his descendants, all of Israel. And what Stephen is going to show us is that the, the fulfillment of this promise, it doesn't find its, um, its culmination in the people of Israel becoming a nation. It doesn't find its culmination in them entering into the promised land, and it doesn't find the, its culmination in them uh, building the temple and having this place to, to sacrifice and worship God, that it ends with Jesus. That the crowd around were, were actually living in the fulfillment of this promise that God had made to Abraham, and yet the descendants of Abraham were trying to put a stop to it. And, and see, the reason I give you that that outline of Stephen's sermon right from the get-go tonight is because over the next few weeks we're actually going to use Stephen's sermon as an opportunity to jump into some of those stories that he's preaching through. Uh, so yes, we're still going to hit every verse in um, Acts chapter seven. Uh, we're not going to mess it up, but we're also going to be reading a lot through Genesis and Exodus. So we're going to be covering the same sort of stories that he's covering. Does that sound fair? Cool. Uh, so tonight we kick off with Abraham. Uh, and if you've got your Bible with you, Acts chapter 7, verse 1. And the high priest said, are these things so? So there are these things there are the, these accusations that are being laid at Stephen's feet, And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and he said to him, Go out from the land of your kindred, and go into the land that I will show you. And then he, Abraham, went out from the land of the Chaldeans, and he lived in Haran, and after his father died, God removed him from there into the land in which you are now living. And verse 5, yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them for 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the 12 patriarchs. All right, so those are our verses in the book of Acts this evening. And I think that pretty much says it all, right? We can go home now. It all makes sense. Um, All right, so Stephen just covered five chapters of the book of Genesis. And so, if it feels like there was a lot he just got through, it's because it was. And so, what I need you to do is, if you've got your Bible with you, uh, jump to Genesis 12. Genesis 12. Uh, or if you got your phone, just swipe across. Or otherwise, it'll be on the screen. Um, all right. So, so Abraham. I, I think most of us are pretty familiar with Abraham, right? Old Testament guy big beard, has his name changed from Abram, which means father of uh, a household to Abraham, father of a nation, Uh, father Abraham and many sons and... (laughs) What? Many sons had father Abraham. Yep, that's the way it goes. Um, See, I I think we know these stories around Abraham, right? Uh, And what I need you to do right at the outset of things is to throw away all those preconceptions. Uh, because the problem with knowing so much about Abraham is we start to view him as this fictional character in a fairy tale. Uh, but this isn't once upon a time or a long, long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. This is a real man who had a real life and had to face some real problems. And, and so look where, where we find Abraham, what we're told is he's living in the city called the Ur of the Chaldeans. Uh, which in ancient times was ancient Babylon. By the time you get to the book of Acts, it's Mesopotamia. And for us today, it would be modern day Iraq. And and what we know is that 4,000 years ago, this region would have been sort of uh, the the peak of ancient civilization. It would have been the peak of agriculture that it's part of what we call the Fertile Crescent. So it would have been lush, it would have been green, and it would have been packed full of people. And it's into that setting that God comes along and he does something really weird. That out of all these people who are worshipping false gods and and living these pagan lifestyles, God steps in and he picks one man. A man that doesn't know God. A man who definitely doesn't worship God. and In all facts, a man who probably doesn't believe this one true Yahweh God exists at all and despite that, God chooses Abraham. Not because he's anything special, not because he's particularly righteous, God just picks him because that's what God does. All right, so Genesis chapter 12 verse 1, now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. In other words, Abram, go away from everything you know, Go away from your family, go away from your job, go away from your home, leave all of that behind and go to where I am calling you. And I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless uh, those who bless you and those who dishonor you, I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So, so God steps into this picture, he steps into this, this man's life, and, and he makes this amazing promise to him. Uh, he promises him that first, he's going to become a great nation, so that implies both descendants and children, and importantly, a promised land. And secondly, he promises him that he's going to be a blessing to the world, uh, which ultimately is actually this promise that points towards Jesus. That through Abraham would come Isaac, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons who become the 12 tribes of Israel. They go to Egypt to come out 400 years after Moses rocks up and says, let my people go. And then eventually they get into the promised land and they've got the judges and then the judges become become kings and they've got David. And you follow through the line of David until eventually you have Mary and Joseph. And they have Jesus. And he is the saviour of the world, and through him the whole world is blessed." So that, that is the promise that, that God is making to Abram. And look, again, if you're reading this story, and all this is, is a fairy tale, right, then this is the moment where you go, wow, that's really cool, God has made this amazing promise to Abram. But, but again, you've got to remember that Abraham was this, was this real guy, right? And what has just happened to him is he has just experienced the presence of the living God stepping into his life. And sure, he's made these, these amazing promises, but there's instructions that go along with that as well, right? And you've got to process all the hurdles that Abraham would have to overcome in order to walk out those promises. I mean, let's start with the obvious. So firstly, Abraham and Sarah, they're 75 at this point. And they have been infertile the entire time they've been married. So they, they've tried having kids, they've they tried having children, and it has not worked. So well, when God promises them they're going to have descendants and nations are going to come from them, that seems like a bit of a tall order. And not only that, how do you in your 70s pack up everything you have, sell all your possessions, and go for like this massive hike through the, the wilderness and the desert and the mountains at that age? And to top it all off, God doesn't tell them where they're going. I, I, I mean, just just think about how that, that interaction with Sarah would have gone, right? So Abraham gets home and he's like, Sarah, come, come sit down, we need to have a chat. And so Sarah comes and they, they sit down and, and Abraham goes, God spoke to me today. To, to which Sarah is immediately skeptical, Right? Um, And Abraham goes, look, this God spoke to me and he rocked up and he gave me this amazing promise and he he said we're going to have all these descendants and my name's going to be great and we're going to have a nation that comes from us. And um, Sarah's just sitting there nodding, going, what has happened to my husband? Um, And Abraham's like, look, I think we should go. I think we should sell everything. I think we should leave behind our families and, and we should go where this God has told us to go. To which Sarah, if she's like any other reasonable woman I know, would ask a very logical question. All right, so where are we going? And what Abraham has to say in that moment is, I don't know. God said he told me when we get there. <laughs> look, look, just speaking to the men for a second, can we just agree this would not go well if that is the sort of conversation you had with your wife? It just wouldn't, right? Uh, and what's crazy, they actually go. They, they, they go, they, they leave everything behind. And in verse 4, Abraham went as the Lord had told him. And Lot went with him. And Abraham was, uh, Abraham was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. That Abraham obeyed. And, and look, this isn't really the, the point of my sermon tonight, but can I just say obedience matters? It, it does. And don't get me wrong, we're up here week in, week out, preaching grace upon grace upon grace because that is the core and foundational message of the gospel uh, that Ephesians 2 says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no man may boast, that we're not saved by our obedience, that that, that Abraham is given the promise regardless of, of whether or not he actually obeys what God is saying. But but once we have been saved, once we have been rescued and brought into the family of God, we are simply supposed to do what the Father says to do. And so if he tells us go, we're supposed to go. And and look, I know that's a theme that's been popping up pretty consistently over the last couple of weeks, that that God actually, he calls each and every one of us, that he has this plan for our lives, and, and he wants us to step out into that that God calls us to be people who, who radically obey and are radically obedient to what he has put in our lives. And, and yet so often as Christians we get caught in this, this cycle of praying and waiting and praying and waiting and praying and waiting, and waiting and we never actually get on with the business of doing what God has said. And, and see, what we see happening here is, is Abraham has this amazing moment of faith where he steps out and he does what God has commanded him. And you have to remember, Abraham doesn't know God. He doesn't have this track uh, record he can sort of lean back on and see, oh, well, God's done this before. He he doesn't know anything about God other than what God has revealed to him in this moment. And yet still he has faith. And And see, at the end of the day, all faith really is, is trusting that God is who he says he is and that he always keeps his promises. And so that's what Abraham does in this moment. He, he has nothing else to go on but what God has, has described himself as, and he has faith and he goes. All right, so that, that's sort of the first encounter that Abraham has with God. And if you've got your Bible in front of you, what I need you to do is, is flick forward a couple chapters to Genesis 15. So that's going to be the next point in Abraham's life where where God shows up in a really uh, intimate way and they have this sort of face-to-face interaction again. And and what I need you to know is as you're turning that over. If you're swiping across to those three chapters, 25 years have just passed. And it's been 25 years of near silence. That Abraham gets into the promised land, he faithfully goes out where God says to go and he gets there and it's just like, nothing. And it's like, God is still working, He is still present in Abraham's life, but from the outside it actually looks like God has sort of forgotten Abraham. And see, what has happened in the season of waiting, this 25 year period is that Abraham's Faith has turned into doubts. All right, so Genesis chapter 15, verse 1. And after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision and said, Fear not, Abram. I am your shield and your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abraham said, behold, you have given me no offspring and a member of my household will be my heir. That Abraham turns to God and is like, look God, it's nice of you to show up, but it's been 25 years. And look, I, I know you promised me descendants, I know you promised to make me a nation, but, but I look around and that's not happening anytime soon. In fact, the only person who's actually gonna be able to inherit my, my wealth and my property at the moment is this Eliezer guy. And, and what we know is this is probably um, Abraham's like chief servant. So Abraham's going, look, this this Eliezer guy, he he he's it's all good for him to like manage my household. And he can look after the books and, and he can look after all the other servants and he can do my laundry and, and, and make my bed. He can do all that, but, but he's not my child, God. He's not my kid. God, you promised me a kid. See, again, in, in the last 25 years, Abraham's faith had turned into doubts, that Abraham doubted. And, and look, up. Have you ever been there? you ever doubted God? Did you ever have questions that you would like to turn to God and to say, hey, God, can you answer this one for me because it doesn't make sense? And and see, I think there are are two sort of categories of doubts we can have, right? The first one is the more cognitive type. Like you start digging into your Bible and you start learning about this thing we call Christianity and, and you just have these questions you don't have the answers to. Like, what happened to the dinosaurs? Uh, and is evolution real? How did the flood happens, uh, happen? What happens to babies that they die? And um, you know, what about the people in the Amazon that, that never hear the good news? What, what about them? And, and look, you, you will occasionally run into people that, that they, if they don't get answers to those sort of questions, they're like, no, I'm never gonna believe if that's the case. But, but for the most part, I actually don't think those are the sort of doubts that really hinder our relationship with God. Because that's that's not what Abraham's feeling here. The the type of doubt that Abraham has in this moment is, it's like this emotional doubt. Like when you look at the story of your life, you're like, God, I don't know what to do with that. I don't have any theology to explain that. God, I I thought you said you would never leave me nor forsake me, and yet, right now, I'm feeling pretty alone and forsaken. Like, you you have a family member that that gets diagnosed, and and it's bad, and that that enough is enough to to cause some doubt in your life, but but you're like, no, I'll be faithful, and you pray, and you pray, and you pray, and, and then they die. And you're just like, what, God? That's not how this is supposed to work. Or you feel like God is calling you to start a business or to go into a job, and like Abraham, you faithfully obey. You step out, you sell, you move, and and then you get there and they fire you. Or the business that you started and you put all your investment in, it goes bankrupt. And now you don't know how you're going to make it to the end of the month, let alone tell your wife. And it's just like... Why, God, I, I thought this is what you were calling me to do. Or, or you married someone. And, and you know, you did it in all the right ways. You, you prayed about it, and, and you sought godly counsel on it, and, and you, you had the, the blessing of the church over it, and, and you both stood up before, before God and your family, and you said, I do, but they didn't. And again, it's just like, God, What? How in the world could you ever let this happen? How could you be a good God and allow me to go through this pain? God, that makes no sense to me. And it's like you're just left with this doubt because you don't understand how a good God could allow that to happen. Because that's what I think Abraham is going through in this moment. And look, if that is you tonight, or if you've ever walked through a season like that, what I need you to know is that God is not afraid of your doubts. He's not. You're allowed to have questions. You're allowed to have, have these doubts that it doesn't make you a bad Christian. And see, what will often happen is some good-meaning Christian will, will come up to you, and they'll be praying with you, and they'll say, look, you just need to stop having doubts. You just need to have more faith. God is good. And it doesn't help, right? And see, what, what we need to actually understand is the opposite of faith, it isn't doubt. The opposite of faith is fear. Because see, what, what faith will always do is faith will always mobilize you. It, it'll always like, push you forward. It'll always draw you closer to God. It'll always get you to take that next step in your faith. But, but fear fear will always paralyze you. It'll always fix you in place and and keep you doubting and you won't be able to take that step. You won't be able to to, to take that step closer to God or or on the journey he's got you on because you will be frozen in place. And and look, that's why I think God rocks up and he says, fear not, Abram. And and look, it's really interesting because if you read through the Gospels, right? Right? And you track through every time that, that sort of Jesus reprimands his disciples. What you'll find is he never reprimands them for their, their, their doubt so much as he does their fear. I mean, take the case of Doubting Thomas, right? Which, by the way, is the worst nickname anyone gets in all of the Bible. Uh, and Thomas does some pretty cool stuff. Like, there's this one scene where he's like, Jesus, I would die for you, I'm yours, and he gets stuck with the, the really rubbish nickname. But Doubting Thomas... Um, he, he's not there when the, the resurrection, resurrected Jesus shows up, right? And so he, he, he misses out and he comes to the other disciples and he's like, look, I'm not going to believe until I see for myself. Until I stick my fingers in, in, in the place where the holes went through and, and until I put my hand into the side where the spear went through, I'm not going to believe because I need evidence. And, and look, God leaves him in that place of doubt for a week. And then Jesus shows up and he doesn't reprimand him. He doesn't tell him all for not believing, for having questions. He just rocks him. He's like, okay, Thomas, here you go. You want to stick your fingers in? Yeah, go for it. You want to see where the spear stabbed through my side? There you go. That is where it went through. That Jesus does not reprimand him for his doubts. Or like there's this time where the disciples are in a boat, right? And there's this massive storm that comes through and hits them. And what we're told is they are afraid. And that has to be like serious level of fear because they're fishermen, right? They know how the waters work. They know what storms are manageable. So they are freaking out. And what we're told is that Jesus is asleep in the bottom of the boat. And so the disciples go, and they wake Jesus up, and they say, Master, do you not care that we are all going to die, that we're going to drown in the storm? And and Jesus gets up, and and he calms the wind and the waves, and then he turns to the disciples, and he says, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Not, Not why did you doubt, why were you afraid? See, church, there's nothing wrong with us having doubt. But what we're supposed to do when we have those questions that we don't have answers to, when we have those moments in life that, that we just can't process why God would allow us to go through, so we're supposed to pick up those doubts and we just follow after Jesus. But, but again, what I think we do is, is we just sit there staring at those doubts, right? We, we get frozen in place and we just keep on looking at them and we look at them and we look at them until eventually we begin to doubt our beliefs and believe our doubts. When what we're supposed to do as Christians is believe our beliefs and doubt our doubts. And look, I know that if you're actually going through a season of pain, those words, they don't really help, right? And if you came to me at the end of the service and said, Liam, I don't understand, why is God allowing this to happen? I'm just going to say, I don't know, and we're going to pray. But what you need to know is is that God has never promised us an answer to every question we will have in this life. And on this side of eternity, there are going to be times where things do not make sense or where where things are going to hurt us, where where life is just going to be painful and it makes no sense to us. But what we are supposed to do is we pick up those doubts and we just keep walking after Jesus. And and so Abraham Abraham has a whole lot of doubts. And and he turns to God and he's like, God, it's been 25 years. I'm not getting any younger. I still don't see how you're going to do this. I don't get it. And in verse 4, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him. So God speaks to that pain in that question. This man shall not be your heir. In fact, your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and he said, look towards heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. And then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. God doesn't explain himself. He doesn't say, Abraham, it's okay. This is how it's going to work. This is the step-by-step guide as to how I'm going to work this for the way I have promised it. He, He just says, look, Abraham, I've still got you. I am still a faithful God. Trust who I am. And then in verse six, and this is probably one of the most important verses in all of the Old Testament, and Abraham believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. That Abraham believed. And look, the word therefore believe in Hebrew is aman, uh, which means uh, to trust, to commit to, to put your belief in. And in the New Testament, where this verse is quoted by the New Testament authors, uh, the the word they translated into is the Greek word, pastua. And and in both of those cases, the the words don't just mean believing that. It's not just about a cognitive assent to a piece of information. Abraham didn't actually sit there counting the stars and go, okay, God, you're going to give me one, two, three, and so on descendants. No, it's not believing that so much as it is believing in. It's putting the full weight of your trust in God. It's not trusting the promise itself so much as it is trusting the promise keeper. And look, I know that's kind of confusing, and the best way I've ever heard it explained is like this. So imagine this chair. You don't have to imagine it, it's here. Um, This chair, right? I could know everything there is to know about this chair. Um, I-, I could go away and read the manual on it and it would tell me like it's uh, weight bearing load and-, and how much you can put on it before it's gonna collapse. I could go away and do the maths myself. I've, I've got some engineer friends and they could work out the structural integrity and-, and-, and we could work out how much weight this seat could bear, right? And I could believe that this chair could hold my weight. But I'm not believing in it. I'm only believing in it when I put the full weight of my life in it. And so right now, if I was wrong, and this chair could not hold my weight, then I would fall with it. If it collapsed underneath me, I would collapse with that. If my belief has been placed in it falsely and it's not true, then it's not going to be able to hold my weight and I'm going to come down with it. See, what Abraham is doing, he's not saying, look God, I trust that you're going to be able to save me. I trust that you're going to keep your promises. I trust that you're going to give me descendants. He says, No, God, I trust in you. I put my belief in you. In other words, Abraham has faith that he trusts that God is who he says he is and that he always keeps his promises. And that is what is counted to him as righteousness. And see, when you're reading the Bible and you come across the word righteousness when it's used to describe an ordinary human being, what what you need to know, it does not mean right activity. It does not mean right behavior or right morals. It's not about living to a certain standard. What what righteousness means in this context is right relationship. That, That because Abraham believed, because he put his trust in God, he is brought into a right relationship, a right standing with that God. The way that James will put it in the New Testament, as you'll say, and the scripture was fulfilled that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, and therefore he was called a friend of God. That because of the belief and trust he had placed in God, he was put into right relationship and was called a friend. And so verse seven, and he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from the earth of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But Abraham said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? So so again, Abraham believes, he's brought into right relationship with God, and yet he still has questions. And, And so God meets him in that question, he says, okay, this is how you will know that I'm going to do what I actually said I'm going to do. I'm going to enter into a covenant with you. And so verse 9, God said to him, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a, a ram three years old, a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And so Abraham brought him all these things, he cut them in half and he laid each half over against the other. And when the sun, uh, so skipping forward to verse 17, and when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying, to your offspring, I give this land. And from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Canaanites, the Kenans, the Canaanites, the Kadamites, the Hittites, the Pezzarites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, and the Gergeshites and the Jebusites. All right, so, so God's like, okay, Abraham, go and get these animals. And, and Abraham goes away and, and he cuts them up. And, and essentially what he's doing is he's making like this pathway of dead animals. So half the animal on each side. And I know that seems kind of weird for us, but that's how you would enter into a covenant in sort of ancient Middle East. uh, That you'd sacrifice these animals and then both parties would walk down the aisle that is created by these dead bodies, all right? And, And look, when I say covenant, I don't want you to think contract. Because a contract is the sort of thing you, it's the sort of thing you have with your internet provider, right? Like, it's an if-then relationship. So they say to you, if you provide us money, then we will provide you with a service, the internet. And the vice versa is true as well. Like, uh, if they fail to provide the service, you're going to go to them and say, look, no, give me my money back because this is not the agreement we've entered into. But a covenant, on the other hand, is more of an I promise agreement, uh, where both parties simply agree to take certain actions. And the best example we have in our culture today is probably marriage, right? That that both parties get up and they say, look, regardless of how you choose to act, uh, uh, you know, sickness, health, better for worse, all all that stuff, I promise to to love you and keep you and hold you and cherish you. That you simply promise to agree to a set of standards. And, And I think we inherently know the difference, right? Like, if you were at my wedding and I got up to say my vows, and I was like, Elizabeth, I promise to love you and cherish you and keep you so long as you stay the current weight you are and uh, you stay this attractive and, uh, you know, you're able to bear kids and you you do the dishes. And I could go through like a big list of things, right, and say, as long as you promise to do these things, then I will love you. And, and then imagine if she stood up and she's like, Liam, I promise to love you and keep you and cherish you so long as, as you, you know... Come home on time and, and you you have a steady income and um, you mow the lawn every week. Like, we, we could do that. And if that happened, you would know that something is really, really wrong in our relationship. Uh, in, in fact, if those were the vows you were, we were saying, you'd probably get up and go, like, get your toaster from the, the gift table and, and you would leave because it's not a covenant and it's not going to last. But, but see, what God is saying here to Abraham, is God's going, look, this is what I promise to do for you. This is my covenant agreement with you. It's not an if-then statement, it's an I promise statement. That is how you know. That is how you can trust that you're actually going to receive what I have promised you, that I am a faithful God. See, see what happened in Abraham's life is, is Abraham obeyed and God was faithful. And then Abraham had doubts and God was faithful. And then Abraham believed, and still God was faithful. Now, Abraham is saying, look, the reason you can trust me, Abraham, is because I am a faithful God, and I will always keep my promises, and so I am making this covenant, this promise with you, and you can trust that. And look, see, the reason they would cut those animals up, right, and they would walk down the and they would walk through the middle of it, is because what they're doing in that moment is they're saying, this is what will happen to us if either of us break the agreement. So if one side fails to to promise what they have done, if one side fails to keep up with their end of the bargain, then they're saying, look, we might as well be like these animals. That you come after us, you cut us into pieces, and and you chop us up and leave us on the ground. That is sort of the, the repercussion for breaking this sort of covenant. And you know what absolutely blew my mind this week? Only God walks through the animals. That, that, that it's dark and Abraham, we're actually told in the previous verses, falls asleep and then this flaming torch and the smoking fire pot, they, they, they go through the pieces. That God makes this amazing promise to Abraham, this amazing covenant. And, and then God says, look, if either of us fail to keep this agreement, if either of us are unfaithful, then I will be killed then I will become like a sacrificed animal. Then I will be beaten and torn apart, and I will die. And see, so church, that's, that's exactly what happened. Look, so, okay, as we close this off tonight, and, and the band can start coming up, maybe tonight you're, you're, you're in a sort of place where Maybe you've known God for a bit, but life has just happened. And like Abraham, you've got a whole lot of doubts. And I'm not saying you don't believe in God anymore. I'm not saying you don't, you don't, you're not a faithful Christian, but it's like you've you just got these questions. You've just got these things that you've gone through, this pain that you're experiencing, and, and just like Abraham, you're left asking the question, God, how am I to know that you're actually good? How am I to know that I'm brought into right relationship with you? How am I to know that you are a faithful God? And and see, what we're told is that when God took Abraham outside and said, look at all the stars, so many will your descendants be, what we're told in the New Testament is that's us. That if you put your faith in Jesus, if you believe in Jesus, you are counted as a descendant of Abraham. And just like Abraham, if we believe, if we put the full weight of our lives in Jesus, it will be counted to us as righteousness and we will be brought into right relationship with God. That if we trust that God is who he says he is and he always keeps his promises, then then we can have a relationship with God. And unlike Abraham, we're not going to be called friends of God. We're actually called children of God. And so if you come to God right now and you ask that same question that Abraham asks, how am I to know God? How can I know I'm in right relationship with you? Well, God gives us the same answer. He makes a covenant with us. That Jeremiah writes, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke. And the covenant that that Jesus died for. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more that God makes a new covenant with us. But see, in this covenant, we aren't just promised a new land, we're promised a new heart. We aren't just promised a place where we can go and we can build a temple to worship God. We are promised that we will become temples of the living God and we can worship him wherever we go. And see, instead of them tearing apart lambs and animals, to signify that they're entering into this covenant. What happens is 2,000 years ago, God sends his one and only son, who becomes the perfect lamb of God, and they nail him to a cross, and his blood is poured out, and that is how our covenant is sealed. So how do you know you can be in right relationship with God? Well, you just look to the cross. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whomsoever would believe in Him, whomsoever would trust in Him, whomsoever would put the full weight of their life into what Jesus did on the cross, shall not die, but have eternal life. So church, do do, do we believe that? And and I don't just mean do do we we believe that, do, do we believe in it? not just cognitively assent to the fact that we put our life and, our, and the weight of our life in Jesus. Because I think there are a whole lot of Christians and, and a whole lot of Christians in Kenmore that we can cognitively assent to the fact that Jesus died for us. That we know that Jesus came for us. That we know that he died for us. But if we're honest, we haven't gone all in. We haven't sat down in the chair. like We've been sitting there looking at it. And we know all there is to know about it. But we haven't put our weight in that chair. And look, while we were worshipping, and we're going to worship in a second, the question that came to my mind that challenged me was, if God wasn't real, would your life still make sense? So I think a whole lot of Christians, again, we believe that Jesus is there, we, we, we come to church, but if God isn't real, our life still makes sense. The rest of the world can look at it and say, oh yeah, I can understand how you do that. I can understand why you do the things you do. I get that. But see, if we're radically following after Jesus, if we actually believe in him, then our life shouldn't make sense to the rest of the world. So do you believe in him? And again, look, you can have your doubts. That's fine. You can have all the questions in the world. I, I still don't have a whole bunch of questions answered that, that I would love for God to answer, but that does not bar us from coming into a relationship with him. We just need to believe. So I, I thank you that you are a faithful God. That though we have done nothing to deserve it, you come along and you pick us out. You choose us, you know us by name and you call us by name. And Lord, I thank you for the moments of faith you give us where we obey just radically based on what you have said to us and we step out in faith, Lord. And God, I pray for more of those moments that in our lives we would hear your voice and we would be a people who obey. And I thank you that you are faithful in that. And Lord, I thank you that even though we have doubts, you are still a faithful God. That you're not afraid of our questions. You're not afraid of our doubts. You just invite us to pick them up and follow after you. And Lord, I thank you that if we believe in you, if we put our trust in you, we can be brought into relationship with you. That you have cut a covenant with us that cannot be broken. It cannot be torn away. We we cannot lose our salvation or lose that relationship with you because you are a faithful God. So Lord, I I just pray that you you bless every single one of us with a heart that actually believes that. That you are who you say you are and you always keep your promises. And then you give us the faith to step out and trust that. In your name, Amen.